Welcome to another episode of the Bobble Guys. My name is Rick Klein. I'm joined here in studio with Jerry Hollinger. Jerry, Cubs are two and one after opening weekend. Cannot believe it, man! I thought it'd be one and two. I thought, and I thought we could actually. You thought, one and three. Right. They had one of the games canceled. That's right. We, um, I think yesterday started off really well. The one we lost, uh, just I don't, the the bullpen couldn't close the deal. Uh, just is what it is. But I, I was excited by watching some of these guys play. Nico with the who called Nico Horner having the first homer for this season. Not I. That wasn't my bet. I'm telling you. For, and then Suzuki came through. Yes, uh, he did. And Happy's hitting. So, hey, yeah, they're fun to watch. Well, Happ is streaky, as you know. Yeah, he is. So hopefully he can continue to streak for a while yeah. more. He's a Bearcat, old Cincinnati Bearcat. So you got to yeah. you know, show that up. True. But excited to see what's going to happen. But again, it's early. By the it, is, it is very early. Yeah. <laughs> so. By the time this podcast gets, this episode gets released, the Cubs may be, you know, not uh, six and two and <laughs> it's all over you know i'd love to go back in my lifetime uh-huh. i can recall instances how many times the cubs were legitimately in the race at the all-star break right and getting my hopes you know so yeah obviously this is a grain of salt series yeah, it really is and i just want to look, look if we beat the brewers i was happy i can't or the cardinals i mean if the cardinals they'll probably win the division okay but if the cardinals don't win the division or get beat early in the playoffs. For me, the baseball season is successful. That's a good point. Yeah, that's sad. Two bitter Cubs fans, and we have a podcast. All right, so we want to get to our question today. Our question comes from a listener, and in the question, Jerry, um, this listener was asking, what is the point of the book of Jonah? Hmm. Now, when we read that, we go, well, what are you talking about? What's the point? Because that, but that is a good question to ask, and maybe we could help our listeners understand why this is such a good question. Yeah, there's a lot going on with Jonah, not in terms of the story, but of how critical scholars take it, what's taking place historically, and then, as you said, how what's, what's it saying? How do you interpret it? What did it mean to Israel? So even though it's one of the most familiar stories, you know, particularly with those of us who grew up in the church— you know, do we really know what's going on with this book? Yeah, it's a very Sunday schooled story. True. Um, you know, and and my, many of our listeners may be asking, so you're going to talk about was it a fish or a whale? It, was that even real? Was it? Gonna... So we're looking at first. We need to talk to our listeners about the different ways people historically, theologians, have historically understood this book. Mm-hmm. So we've got a couple different views, and I'll kind of throw a couple out there, and if you want to define them, you can. First, there's the allegorical view. Right. So what does the allegorical view hold? Well, the allegorical view would deny the historicity of the book and basically just find a deeper meaning in every person and thing and incident throughout. Yeah, what could some of the—and that's up to you, really, isn't it? Because that's the beautiful part about the allegorical view. <laughs> that's right, and that's the that's the huge problem yeah, with it. Yeah, there's, no, there's nothing—it's like nailing jello to a wall. Nothing will it stick, is. and uh, you're is. not sure. So then there's the historical view. Right. Which is probably—we call it the traditional view. Yeah, and I think that's the view that, that we'll argue for. I would agree, yeah. And um, it's funny, most scholars— until relatively recently, both Jewish and Christian scholars would hold a historical position of the book. But today, most critical scholars will deny the historicity of the book, and disturbingly, a growing number of evangelical scholars are denying the historicity of the book. And some of them might grant that there was a historical prophet named Jonah but as far as what happened in the book, many would deny the historicity or the reality of it. That leads us to another question, not in the question from the a listener, but I have it now. I would say, or I would ask, 
Why is that? Why is it that modern scholarship wants to either ignore or flat out deny the historicity of the book of Jonah? Yeah, there are a lot of reasons for that. And and when you go through the commentaries and listen to people, they'll give reasons like uh, the king of Assyria is called the king of Nineveh, or Mm -hmm. they'll talk about the size of the city of Nineveh, or they'll talk about the fact that there's no historical record of Nineveh repenting and those kinds of things. But really, when you boil it down, the big issue is that there is an anti-supernatural bias Mm -hmm. to the Bible. And as you mentioned, the whole fish thing, whatever that creature was, we really don't know. But that is the bottom line of why most people reject the historicity of the book. Can we clear up something for some of our listeners, um, just for fun? This is the statement you hear all the time. You you know, kids will say, Jonah was swallowed by the whale, and the teacher, there's a, it was a fish, great fish. Mm-hmm. Okay, listen, first of all, teacher, um, it, in the Hebrew, it's sea monster. Uh-huh. Like, that's literally what it says in the Hebrew, a sea monster. So it could be Nessie. So let's have that moment. Um, so stop, stop making your, ch- your students feel bad for saying the word fish. Just get over it. <laughs> You're turning them off to the Bible. They're leaving the church in droves. Stop. <laughs> you know, another another thing we should bring up about the his, the um, denying the historicity of the book. Basically, what, what you're asserting is if you're even granting that there's a God, and I'm sure, you know, God is really happy that they would even go that far and acknowledge he exists. But if God exists... To demythologize and dehistoricize the book of Genesis, you basically have to say that this God who exists is a deist God who has no involvement in human history at all. And if you carry this to its ultimate conclusion, how can you really say you believe in creation or the plagues of the Exodus or the parting of the Red Sea or the miracles of Elisha or the miracles of the apostles or the miracles of Jesus or a coming new heaven and new earth, you really can't argue any of that. But if you are ready to say there is a God who is involved in human history, then there shouldn't be any kind of issue in accepting the facts of the book of Jonah. Yeah, agreed. And so as we get into this, we both, we've set it out, we've kind of played our cards out. We are both, we see the historical view. Mm-hmm. However, we might differ from the traditional idea that's the way it's taught. Maybe I should say it that way. Uh-huh. Um, so I'll, I'll just put my card out on the table. Jonah is not a hero and not the hero of this story. Yeah. Jonah is, he's the bad guy here. And he's always the bad guy throughout. I yeah. mean, even in chapter four, right. after he's regurgitated on the beach, he's still mad at God. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's never happy. Yeah. I don't think he's ever right with God throughout no. the whole book. No, he actually, and one thing I like to point out at, at the very end whenever I'm teaching this book is how he uses God's self-declaration from from Exodus 34. You know, the Lord is a slow to anger, steadfast, who who's filled with steadfast love, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Um, Jonah uses that almost insultingly in his tone to God when he says, when he when God spares the city, Jonah responds with, "You see, God, that's why I fled because I knew you were a slow to anger." abounding in steadfast love, God. Like, he literally accuses God for being good. Yeah. He's like, I knew you were going to forgive them. Jonah is the bigot prophet. Mm-hmm. And and really what Jonah shows is the bigotry of 
the people of Israel at that time. Yeah. And I, and I think um, I, I absolutely agree with you. I, th- I think, though, we should give him a little bit of slack, however, um, because the prophets had foretold that Assyria was going to be an instrument of judgment on the nation of Israel. And we know from extant literature from the Bible that, you know, the, the Assyrians were notoriously cruel and, and evil and tortuous of their enemies. Right. So, you know, you can kind of get why he would feel that way. I'm mm-hmm. not, and I'm not justifying it. Right. I'm just saying I think we can understand his position mm-hmm. because he knew God was going to use the Assyrians. He knew what they were like. So maybe he was a nationalist, which is good, but maybe he just took that too far. Yeah, and we want to remove Assyria from the VeggieTales version where they just yes, slapped each other with fishes. Right. These were people who, some of, they practiced fear tactics. They, they, when they conquered a city, it was, it was known that they would take the heads of the men, the soldiers, pile them up as pyramids outside the front of the city so that when people came by, they knew this is what happens to Assyria. They would take the 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 famous men or the most important men and like flay them yes. and and nail their skins to the walls or use them as flags. These were horrible people. I mean, they had. We read them and think how barbaric they were, but when you look at the capital city of Nineveh, historically, beautiful city, beautiful architecture, pretty brilliant in how they designed the city to be right there on the Tigris to where it's almost impenetrable. Mm-hmm. without a navy, um, and then God uses that. We see in the book of Nahum, God actually uses the Tigris River to the erosion of the walls and flood the city so that the, the people enter. Um, but yeah, we this was a cruel people. But again, um, so, so I give, you're giving Jonah, you're giving Jonah, pa- not a pass, but you're giving a little, you're helping him out a little bit. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like, okay, man, I could, uh, I can feel what he's feeling. Right. Not that it's right. Right. I'm just saying, you know, humanly, mm-hmm. it's understandable. Yeah. But again, we see him as he's not the hero of the story. Correct. All right. So let's go ahead. What's, totally agree. what's going on in the story? Well, I think um, I think it's important to set it in its historical context, the story. And in fact, it was Jonah himself in, is it First Kings or Second Kings 14? Um, memory eludes me I think it's for a Kings moment. 14. First I'll, Kings I'll 14. I'll check. Yeah, check that out. Somewhere in Kings, I'm almost positive it's chapter 14. But in Kings 14, Jonah had prophesied that Israel would expand her borders. And that prophecy came to pass under Jeroboam's reign. And as Israel became more prosperous, of course, Israel started to neglect God more and more. And she started to withdraw from God. I think that's one important thing to to remember historically. And then the other thing historically to remember, as we've already said, is that it had been prophesied that God was going to use Assyria to judge the nation. So I think those are two things to keep in mind as far as the background of the story. Okay, so we've got Jonah going, and we know the story, how it goes down. Jonah is, God God tells him to go to the city, cry out against it. Now, there's something there I want to kind of point out to it too. He never says, tell him to repent. He says, cry out against it. And Jonah himself, once he goes, I've used so eloquently put it, post-regurgitation, mm-hmm. <laughs> post-fish regurgitation, he goes to the city and he says, 40 days in destruction. Yeah. He doesn't say, repent. He just says, 40 days in destruction. 
But here's what you see in this story, and that's why I think the story is so important. You see a response from the people of repentance because they say, who knows, maybe he'll relent. So what is it, the way it's worded in the book, everybody, man, woman, child, beast, yeah, all putting on sackcloth, all repenting. Yeah. So quick question, is this showing their belief in Yahweh, or, in, or is this their pagan, hey, there's a God who's angry, let's repent to that God? Are we seeing in this story the city of Nineveh believing in Yahweh, or do we see almost superstitiously trying to cover their bases? That, that's a great question, and my answer has always been that they had not come to belief in Yahweh. Rather, they had just seen some evidence of Jonah's God, and they were basically afraid, and they responded to the message. And I want to give just a line, a line of argument to, to buttress that interpretation. I remember years ago, man, this was probably at least 15, if not 20 years ago, I was teaching a class at another seminary on the prophets, and we came through to Jonah. And I mentioned that, that I didn't think that um, the Ninevites actually were saved in the sense that we're talking about it. And um, got a lot of pushback from that because I think it was so, has been so taught that, yeah, they had this great revival and they were saved. But I think one explanation as to why they came to repentance is found in Luke 11, which I'd like to come back to at, at some later point. In Luke eleven twenty nine, Jesus refers to the sign of Jonah. The word, the noun Jonah, is in the is is in the genitive case, and I would argue that it would have it would be an appositional genitive, and so the idea would be the sign that was Jonah, right? And I think that's confirmed by the very next verse in verse thirty, where it says, "For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites." So where this is pushing me is to say that it wasn't so much the preaching of Jonah that was the catalyst to Nineveh's repentance, but rather it was something about Jonah himself, because Jesus says Jonah was the sign. Yeah. And when we go back into um, uh, the mythology and the literature at this time, there was the belief that there was a half-god, half-fish creature that emerged from the Persian Gulf and actually was instrumental in in founding the city of Nineveh and teaching mm-hmm. them different different things. And I think it's very reasonable to say that the marks of being in the fish, whatever it was, would have been left on Jonah. And very possibly, someone or some people would have witnessed Jonah being expectorated on the beach. And so I think think possibly that's a very strong suggestion as to how Jonah himself was a sign. And I think that could be an explanation as to why there was repentance and they were responding to this, you know, belief in their mythology. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was going to be my next statement to bring up because that's my reasoning. I hold the same hmm. view as you. So you and I would have not gotten along that same seminary um, <laughs> yeah. because I hold the same view. I do not believe this is a a a Yahwistic revival. Mm -hmm. I believe that they are the reason why they repent, and that's why they repented. Another argument against or uh, for the allegorizing view of this is that um, how could they have repented so quickly? Exactly. That's one of the... Well, the the reason is, is because they were found, it's actually believed that Nineveh was founded by that fish god. Yes. And they're seeing now what they would have seen by that, that fish 
vomiting out Jonah on the seashore, and I believe people were seeing that, especially if you look at the uh-huh. if you look at the uh, archaeology of how close the city was to the riverbed. That's right. Um, people would have seen this. People talk. Who's this guy? A great fish brought him on shore. We don't see that a lot. He must be a messenger of that fish deity, mm-hmm. and we're going to repent because that's the guy. That's the God who founded us. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it makes exact sense that that's the reason why the repentance happened. And again, I believe this was not a again a Yahwistic revival, but rather a our fish God was speaking to us. We're going to repent. It kind of it helps also without with at the very end when God tells Jonah. These guys don't know they're right from their left. Mm-hmm. Like they're still they're still not right. They're mm-hmm. still not where they should be, but they've been spared. Mm-hmm. And that's what that that's what God is communicating in that passage. Isn't it right that I should spare? I believe it's one hundred twenty thousand mm-hmm. that don't know they're right from their left, as long as well as many cattle. Meaning that they just they don't know, they don't know about me. They didn't. They don't have my law like you do, Jonah. Which again, now we see a little bit of an indictment, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jonah. As a as a as as being a part of the people of Israel had the law, they knew God was slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Yet Jonah was not slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love to faithfulness. He was not representing his God well, and that's what we're seeing here. There, there's an that's an indictment, I think, to Jonah or against Jonah. Yeah, and 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 to us. And I think Luther was asked or said one time, if he were in charge, he would you know, bust the world into pieces. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the the two disciples of Jesus, you know, shall we call fire down from heaven on these cities? And and that is our response frequently. And, you know, when you look at the wickedness of the world and this time period of Jonah of the 8th century doesn't have a monopoly on wickedness, you know, it, it's just astounding to me how God hasn't judged yet. And I feel like Habakkuk sometimes. It's like, why haven't you done anything? And as you said, God is so patient and so forbearing. Um, really an incredible lesson about God. Right. So as we would teach this passage, um, you know, I like to when I like to do this, I like to talk about, okay, what does this passage teach us about who God is? I think that's the key. Mm-hmm. So what I see in this passage is a God who loves people under the target if I use this term of my bigotry, the ones I would I would hate, yeah, the ones I would say deserve this, God still shows immeasurable grace and mercy yes. too. Very true. So, and, and I think, and as I said, I think that's an indictment on all of us because right. we all have those nations or groups of people that we feel that way about, and it's really a challenge to see people through the eyes of God, and and we struggle with that sometimes. And I think that's a something there at the end, like I said later or said earlier, where God says they don't know their right from their left. Um, I, I like to read this in my apologetics class, Second Corinthians chapter four, where it talks about the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers True. to keep them from coming to the knowledge of the glory of the Son of God. And we, our hearts were enlightened by that's God. Right. And so I like to describe it. You know, an unbeliever or non Christian is not the enemy; they're a hostage. The enemy has them hostage. He's blinded their minds. Our job as faithful ministers of the gospel is to share the truth and pray and hope that the Holy Spirit enlightens their minds to understand and believe the gospel, yeah. but not to fight and hate against other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. 
Yeah, and I think we can also go back to God's heart for the entire world because when, and, and really I think it's legitimate to see Jonah as picturing the nation of Israel. Yeah. Uh, you know, to say that isn't to deny the historicity of the book. Right. But I think it's clear. You go back to the very first statement in Genesis 12 of what God wanted to do through Abraham's seed, and he expressly says that through Abraham's seed, he wants to bless the world. And the seed of Abraham was to be a light to the nations. They were to teach the nations. They were to be a priest for the nations uh, before God. That was their role. Uh, Even Paul talks about that in Romans 2 when he is talking about the guilt of the Jewish people, that they had not fulfilled this role. And Jonah really becomes a picture of the recalcitrance of the entire nation not reaching out to their Gentile neighbors, thus showing that it's God's intent not just to have a Jewish-oriented kingdom someday, but it's to have a Jewish-oriented kingdom through which all of the Gentiles are blessed and partake in the the bounty of everything that God wants to do. Not having to do with anything, anything with Jonah, but what you just said brought something up. Last week as I was you know studying Scripture, doing my own study, um, reading in the book of of in Mark, where you have the feeding of the 5,000, and then you have the feeding of the 4,000. There were 5,000 predominantly Jewish people, mm. but the 4,000 was in a predominantly Gentile area. And right in the middle, you have Jesus' story with the Syrophoenician woman. Yes. And that, and, and I saw it for the first time. I looked at it I was like, whoa, I'm, this is cool. Because she said, the, you know, he says, it's not good to give the, the bread from the children to the dogs. And she says, yes, but the, the dogs even get to eat from the crumbs. Mm-hmm. Well, Mark 8, where the feeding of the 4,000, that's, that's the crumbs. The Gentiles are now getting. So what's, why does Mark arrange it this way? He's, he's arranging the two feedings right in the middle between that and that Syrophoenician woman right in the middle to show that this kingdom that's coming, it's a Jewish first. We're going to use that phrase because it says that in Romans. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But the Gentile is included. And I, and I just kind of sat back and looked at that and thought, wow, I never caught the connection before that you see that. And you're right. This is exactly what's happening. God is showing through this story, the, the bigoted prophet Jonah, that God's kingdom is bigger mm-hmm. than what they may be thinking. And I, I want to make an application, too, to somebody who might be listening. Um, it's easy to be intimidated sometimes by critical scholars and they can rattle off their list of reasons why Jonah is not a historical figure, which would make everything we've said kind of irrelevant. Yeah, turn off the podcast. If he isn't. Um, But I want to go back to Luke 11. And in Luke 11, Jesus testifies to the historicity of Jonah because he's, he's talking with the Pharisees, and he's kind of castigating them for their unbelief. And he says, you know, my resurrection is going to be a testimony against you. And then he uses Jonah as the illustration, and he says, look, and he, and he refers to Jonah, he refers to the fish, he refers to him being in the fish, and the people of Nineveh repenting. And then he says, those people are going to rise up against you at the day of judgment because a greater than Jonah is here whom you have rejected. So here you have Jesus asserting you know, the historicity of Jonah. And then what's even more fascinating to me is the very next verse, he refers to the queen of Sheba. Mm -hmm. 
coming to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. Here now a greater than Solomon is here, and you are rejecting him. The queen of Sheba will stand up at resurrection and testify against you. So I'm not aware of the critics denying the historicity of the queen of Sheba Mm -hmm. or Solomon, but we can't accept Jonah because that's too supernatural, and that's why they want to reject it. But here you have Jesus asserting the prophet Jonah the very events that give a, give a lot of people problems with the book, and he says that's going to factor into the Day of Judgment, and then he parallels that with the Queen of Sheba. So people shouldn't be intimidated by that. Um, be more concerned with Jesus' opinion of Jonah rather than some critical scholar. That's good. All right, well, thank you for that question. As always, you can submit questions to our email at babagospodcast at gmail.com. You can also send those questions on Instagram and our Twitter at babagospod, same username for both of those social media platforms. Make sure to like and subscribe to this podcast uh, on your favorite listening station so you can make sure you get new content as it is updated. We try to release new information or new uh, podcast every Friday at 8 a.m. to make your commute go by faster. For Jerry Hollinger, I'm Rick Kleiner. We'll see you next time.